Renew International brings you small group resources to deepen your spiritual life. Renew's newest resource, Open Our Hearts, guides your Lenten journey to examine how you live out your faith at home, in your parish, and in the world. Learn more at www.renewintl.org Lent. Again, that's www.renewintl.org Lent. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerardo Connell and I will take you behind the headlines on the biggest stories out of the Vatican. So many bishops or theologians have the meaning that we can change a little bit our outlook and modernize the presentation and then the people will come back. Cardinal Gerhard Muller, an open critic of many of Pope Francis' initiatives, has released a new book in which he blasts the Synod on Synodality, Papal Resignations and Pope Francis' relationship with U.S. President Joe Biden. Ser homosexual no es un delito. No es un delito. The day after we recorded this episode, Pope Francis gave a wide-ranging interview to the Associated Press, in which he addressed a range of topics, including homosexuality, his own handling of the sexual abuse crisis, the Vatican-China agreement, and his own health. But perhaps most relevant to this episode, Pope Francis responded to his critics on many fronts. You can read my summary of the interview at americamagazine.org and listen to our ITV minisode recapping key points of the interview. At the end of the Angelus, Pope Francis announced that both synodality and Christian unity are two goals that the church seeks and that are interconnected. Synods depend upon having both the confidence to speak and the humility to listen. Listening is daring to open yourself to people who've got views other than your own. Pope Francis has instructed all bishops traveling to the Vatican for the first main session of the Synod on Synodality this October to arrive in Rome early for an ecumenical prayer vigil and a silent retreat. The retreat will be led by Timothy Radcliffe, the former leader of the Dominican Order. The visit is going to take place very soon. In 10 days' time, the Holy Father will be landing here in Juba together with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator. Pope Francis will visit the Democratic Republic of the Congo and South Sudan from January 31st to February 5th, in a long-awaited visit that was postponed last year because of his recurring knee troubles. I'm Ricardo de Silva, and this is Inside the Vatican. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Ricardo, from a sunny beautiful day in Rome. I must confess, I'm not sure what the weather's like in New York today. I rushed here, the trains were late. So it's an ordinary day in New York City. Jerry, it appears to be this sort of tell-all season of books uh, at the Vatican at the moment. Two weeks ago, we had Archbishop Georg Ganswein's book with all those revelations about what was going on between Pope Francis and Pope Benedict. Last week, We had Cardinal George Pell's posthumously revealed writings and the the memo and the letter. This week, you've read a new book by Cardinal Gerhard Muller, which again seems to contain attacks on Pope Francis. Yes, it's an amazing period in the the pontificate. And I I suspect, Ricardo, that the next two years may well be a roller coaster kind of season here in Rome. First, the Ganschwein book, then the 
repel posthumous articles and stories. And now Cardinal Muller's 224-page interview book with an Italian journalist, Franca Gian Soldati, who writes for the Messaggero paper. It's a national paper, but really it's the Rome paper, uh, which Pope Francis glances at in the morning. So he was appointed as the prefect or head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, the Vatican's doctrinal body, by Benedict XVI. He was not made a cardinal until Pope Francis took over the papacy. And then Francis didn't renew him as the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. Jerry, what else do we need to know about Cardinal Muller? Well, he, he was a bishop in Germany. He was a friend of Cardinal Ratzinger, Benedict XVI. Benedict XVI brought him to Rome, appointed him in 2012 as the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Francis, in 2017, after he had done his first five-year stint as prefect, said, I am not going to renew you for another five years. And it seems, uh, according to Muller, he offered him another job, but he never explained the reason why. So he was prefect only for the first five years of Francis' papacy? He was prefect for five years. And that, that is the normal term of office for prefect. Francis took him over from Benedict and continued counting, as it were, from the date of his original appointment. But it seems that in some ways their relationship, much like Genschwein was soured by the fact that he was not renewed as prefect of the papal household, for Cardinal Muller, uh, it was not being renewed as prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. Yes, Muller was obviously very unhappy, and he, he doesn't hide his unhappiness in the book. And he says at least twice in the book, if not more, the Pope Francis never explained the reasons. But now, having read 224 pages, I understand very well why Pope Francis did not feel that Cardinal Muller was on the same page as him. So let's get into the reasons that you get from this book, perhaps for why Pope Francis didn't renew Cardinal Muller. Well, I'll give you some of the reasons. If you read the first chapter, you will find that Cardinal Muller is not only unhappy with the German synodal way, he's actually unhappy with Pope Francis's synodal path, the synodal process, the synod on synodality that is now underway. And he says, this is really moving to a democratization of the church. It's moving to a Protestantization of the church, making the church more Protestant. And, of course, that's not what Francis is doing. Jerry, what does he mean by Protestantization? I mean, obviously that it's making the church more Protestant, but in which respects? Well, he really is, believes that uh, it's being handed over more to the lay people, that everybody is having their say in it, the bishop's uh, role, authority somehow being diminished. He doesn't unpack it so much, but he uses the he uses like almost interchangeably democratization of the church and Protestantization of the church as distinct from a hierarchical church. That's really, I, I think, his bottom line. And so if he's conveyed that view to Francis, which I'm sure he must have, obviously Francis would have said, well, we're really not on the same page. Then he disagrees with the Pope's position towards China. He describes President Xi Jinping as a modern-day god, like the Roman emperors were considered as gods. He now is a god, and he said, you shouldn't be dialoguing with the devil. Of course, this is a phrase from Francis, but he he's using it in relation to the Pope's relation to China. So saying that the Pope is dialoguing with the devil, Basically. characterizing China as the devil. 
Of course, he praises Cardinal Zen as a modern-day martyr, like Cardinal Minzenzi in Hungary, Cardinal Beran in Czechoslovakia, other cardinals who, Stepinak and such like, the great heroes of the church in Eastern Europe under communism. And he strongly disagrees with the Vatican agreement with China on the appointment of bishops, correct? Yes, he said, you don't dialogue with the devil. And he said, we shouldn't be really going down. We should be standing by the church that is faithful. And he said the church in China, and he's referring to the church recognized by the state, they shouldn't be acolytes or altar boys of the state. Echoing what Francis said about Kirill in Ukraine. So he's using Francis's words to make criticisms of moves by Francis. Ex exactly. He, and he doesn't quote them, but you can see the parallels. Mm -hmm. uh, then he talks about many other things. So bringing Cardinal Muller's criticisms a little closer to home, he also has things to say about the US church and particularly the relationship that Pope Francis has with President Joe Biden. Yes, he compares Francis' relation towards Trump, President Trump, with how he treats uh, President Biden. He said he criticized Trump for putting up a wall between Mexico and the United States. And he said, of course, we agree with him on this. But then he seems to give President Biden a pass on the question of communion, even though uh, he is supporting uh, abortion. And so he said that the Pope should be above the political differences. He's suggesting that Francis really has kind of weakened on this point. And he criticizes brother cardinals, right? I mean, he's criticized Cardinal McElroy in this book as well. He criticizes Cardinal McElroy for, he said, he's presenting the Eucharist as a private thing. Of course, this is not what Cardinal McElroy is doing. But it's, it's a long list of things that he feels. So it's less a coherent book. It's responding to various topics of the day. But what comes out of it really is that He's giving the answer to his own question. Why did Francis not renew me for another five years? Because then I would be 75 and I would have done 10 years as prefect. He's showing very clearly that his way of thinking was not that of Francis on the question of church, and especially on this key issue of synodality. He sees the German church as really more or less departing from Rome. He's very critical of the German synod. He feels Rome should be more articulate and come in strongly on this question. He feels Rome should be much more outspoken in the defense of human rights, of the Uyghurs in China, of the people in Hong Kong, of other situations. He even says Francis should be more outspoken on Ukraine. Well, this is extraordinary because Francis has spoken more than almost 150 times now on the Ukraine. And so it's a book that will raise many points of discussion. This book is the third in less than a month. We have Genschwein's tell-all book. We then had Pell's memo and the letter. Now we have this book by Cardinal Muller. They all draw out similar themes and almost identical criticisms of the papacy of Pope Francis. Why do you think this is so prevalent now? You know, Ricardo, I, I've studied and followed the papacies, modern papacies. And I've followed the end of 
the last seven years of John Paul II, I remember books coming out about the next Pope, and they were really raising issues of, about what was had gone wrong in John Paul II's papacy. I saw also Benedict was coming in for a lot of criticism, and there was questions being raised. And I remember even Time magazine had a front page story in 2010 saying, you know, Benedict's nightmare and how he had dealt with the question of abuse in Germany. So it's kind of par for the course that near what people see as near the end of a pontificate, uh, people are looking beyond the pontificate. They're identifying the problem areas of the current pope, but they're looking to a future dream pope that they would like to have. Obviously, there's a whole group who are not happy with Francis's papacy. Uh, it's interesting that uh, Genschwein, in his book, he says what has happened is not that Benedict and Francis have been clashing, but their group of fans of both popes have been clashing publicly. But, I mean, Jerry, you, you mentioned the criticisms. We hear those loud and clear, right? And there are certainly those who defend Pope Francis, but their voices seem to be almost swallowed up uh, in the noise that we're getting from the critics. I mean, who are Pope Francis' vocally defensive fans? Look, I think, uh, Ricardo, we've got to distinguish what happens in the Anglophone world and especially in North America and what happens, say, in Africa or in Asia. This same kind of echo is not being heard in these continents much. The attacks are coming more in the Anglophone world. I'm not saying only, I'm saying more in the Anglophone world, but also because there you have the megaphones reflecting the voices of the of what I still confidently say is, is a minority. I talked recently to the president of the Asian bishops. They said Pope Francis there is really so supported and admired. I think it's just the critical voices or voices that get a lot of attention because they are lifted in the media and it's part of what what the media does, what we do, we are to blame too, to lift points of criticism, to raise suspicion uh, when suspicion is raised in the slightest. And we don't lift the voices which seem to cheer the great initiatives of Pope Francis. Yes, but the, the, there are two facts as well. That the What I've said before in this program, that we're dealing with the conflictual nature of the Western media. That if you don't have conflict, you don't have good news, in, in a sense. And the good news is not told. The, the bad news tends to predominate. You, you, you analyze any television news program at night. What are the main stories? Are they the good news stories of what many good people are doing? Or are they the problems, the, the killings, the, the negativity? It seems that Pope Francis' fault finders, his critics, aren't going to be won over by him anytime soon. We've seen that this week with the release of some plans as we look forward to the Synod. But we'll get into all of that after the break and also his visit to sub-Saharan Africa next week. So as we saw before the break in our conversation, the Synod on Synodality is sparking significant ill feeling toward Pope Francis. 
following this worldwide consultation process, which has been ongoing in the church. The Synod is now in the continental phase. So bishops and people around the world are gathering together to review the synthesis prepared by the Synod Committee uh, and to feedback on what they see as the really critical issues that the bishops need to address at the ordinary assembly of the Synod uh, this October. But Pope Francis, in the meantime, and the Synod organizers are also moving on with other plans. This past week, two announcements came out of the Vatican ahead of the Synod. Jerry, can you tell us what's happened there? Last Sunday, Pope Francis made the announcement that on the eve of the assembly in Rome next October, the 4th of October to the 29th, there will be, first of all, a day of prayer involving the other Christian churches led by the community of Tizay, led, led by the Christian Unity, Office of the Vatican, the Office for Laity, and such like. And he's invited the different Christian churches to have send representatives, especially young people, to this day of prayer on the 30th of September before the Synod starts. And then, so Francis has always insisted that the Synod is not a parliament, is not a debating show. It is, first of all, a prayer, a spiritual event to be understood within the Christian understanding of God speaking to his people, also through the voices of the different local churches. But Jerry, this this idea of ecumenism, right? I mean, this idea of bringing all the Christian churches together before a synod and even at a synod is not new, right? At Vatican II, we had ecumenical observers. We've had this throughout the, the church's history. What makes this particularly important as Pope Francis is seeing it? Pope Francis sees the synodal process as really connecting with the tradition of the first millennium of the church, but also a tradition that has been continued by the other Christian churches. Many of them work in synods. And so he feels that by the Catholic Church really embracing synod and synodality again, it is somehow bridging the divide between the Catholic Church and the other Christian churches. So it's a very important ecumenical step forward to move in this. And so that's why he's bringing them together to pray with the Catholics on the eve of the Synod. And then the second thing the Pope uh, surprised everybody, he said, all those who are going to participate in the Synod, the, the bishops and the other people, other participants, we don't know the list yet, he said, I want them all to do a three-day retreat outside Rome led by the former master of the Dominicans, Timothy Ratcliffe, the English Dominican, who is really a very recognized spiritual figure and spiritual guide. So Francis is really putting the frame on the Senate. He said it has to be, first of all, prayerful, spiritual thing. Remember when there was a lot of push in the Amazonian Senate for the Pope to approve the ordination of mature married men or to give the okay to it. Francis felt that there was too much uh, lobbying and pressure there. And he said the thing hadn't become mature yet. Now he's trying to ensure that at this synod on synodality, that the whole thing moves in a prayerful atmosphere. And you remember some time back, I discussed the 
particular council, a kind of synod that took place in Australia. And they were able to resolve their problems because they prayed every day in, and prayed quite seriously each day. Uh, and so Francis is insistent. This is a spiritual process, not a parliamentary session. And it seems that Father Radcliffe is the person to do this, right? I mean, one, he has ecumenical appeal, but also he, in a speech he gave on synodality, he's, he is clearly on board with the idea, and he says, it makes us dare to listen. Uh, and that's very much in what Pope Francis has said, often using the Greek idea, parasia, to speak boldly and with courage. And so it seems that, that this is what the tenor for this synod uh, is intended to be. Cardinal Hollerick, who is the general relator for the synod, has also picked up that there might be some tensions related to the synod. And he said something really interesting this week. He said that tensions can be positive. They can help us to listen. And he used this image, which comes from the title of the synod document, uh, Enlarge the Space of Your Tent. And he says, in, in a tent, you need to have tension to pull the tent into position, into frame. He, he, he seems not to be worried about the tensions in the synod, but we are hearing more and more about these tensions. Well, of course, the reality is, if you look back at the history of the councils in the church, not to mind the synods, you, you will find very strong tensions. The Second Vatican Council really had strong tensions. If you think of the first sessions where there, was, there wasn't a punch-up, but there was very strong feelings and a lot of even public statements coming out. You go back to the Council of Jerusalem in the Acts of the Apostles. It shows there was tensions there. And, and so uh, tensions does not mean negativity. It means people are coming with different views, with different insights, and then they work through these and try to come to some kind of consensus. Cardinal Holrich was very clear. He says, uh, Francis has says, we're, we're not just, we're in a change of epoch. We're really in, in a, one of these transformational moments in the history of the world, and we have to try to find how we preach the gospel, how we make Christ known in the midst of this situation. My novice master used to say to us that if we were not living in tension, we were not living. Uh, and so I think we are certainly going to be living through this tension for the next couple of months, and we'll be coming back to the Synod. I want to turn now to Pope Francis' upcoming visit to sub-Saharan Africa. For the first time next week in a five-day visit to two countries, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and South Sudan, from January 31st to February 5th, Pope Francis will visit these countries. It's also your first time there, isn't it? Yes, it's my first time to these countries. I've been to many other countries in Africa. But uh, Pope Francis is not the first pope to visit the Democratic Republic of the Congo. John Paul II went there first in 1980, and then he went a second time in, the, I think, 1985, if I'm not mistaken. But it's Pope Francis' first time. It's Pope Francis' first time, and Pope Francis will be, it will be the first time to visit the South Sudan, which is the newest country in the world, which became a, an independent state in 2011. There is great excitement and enthusiasm in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, this is the country with the largest Catholic population in the whole of Africa. And uh, in Africa, now Catholics are almost 20% of the world Catholic population. It's a church that is growing, the African church. 
it may be poor, it may have so many armed conflicts in various parts, but the Catholic Church is growing, and there is great love for the Pope, and they're only sorry that he can't go to the east of the country where the war is really raging. And he said in a recent interview, I would not be afraid to go there, but my fear was that if we had mass in a stadium, somebody threw a bomb into it, and many people would get killed, and I couldn't put them at risk. But he's going there, and it's a mission of peace. It's a mission of peace. It's also a mission of joy. And it's really that new life present in the church uh, in South Sudan and in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and on the African continent that's inspiring this visit. Francis is going to encourage the church in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which has played a great role in these past 20, 25 years in trying to bring democracy to the country, helping to overcome the divisions. It's a country that's so rich in minerals, but so many poor people because others are exploiting from outside, are exploiting, taking out the riches of the countries, and there is corruption. And, and on that point, I've recorded a video for America, which will go out closer to the Pope's visit uh, on our YouTube channel. We'll add a link to that in our show notes when it goes up explaining exactly what the conflict is in South Sudan and why the Pope is visiting uh, this country. But turning to the itinerary, what is planned for the Pope's visit? The Pope leaves Rome on the 31st of January, and after a seven-hour flight, he will arrive in Kinshasa, the capital city of the Democratic Republic of Congo, a city where there are 10 million people. He's going to meet various groups there, including victims of the conflict in the east of the country. He's going to have an open-air mass at which it's scheduled or it's predicted at least a million and a half people will attend. Uh, he's going to meet uh, charity workers. He's going to meet the bishops. He's going to meet the Jesuits. All these. He's going to address the authorities of the country and the diplomatic missions, that's the ambassadors from the different countries who have relations with the Congo. And obviously, the central theme will be peace, peace in this region and peace in Africa. And from there, he will fly, I think, three, four hours from Kinshasa to the capital of South Sudan, Juba, where he will be met by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Church of Scotland, that will be an ecumenical visit for peace. So again, we see this ecumenical emphasis of Pope Francis' papacy. Because there has been great ecumenical cooperation since the country became a new state in the world since 2011. And even before that, in the struggle for independence. And they will try to shake the leadership of this country, those who are governing and those in the opposition, to say, you overcome your differences. You can be a rich country. You have 11 million people. But now three to four million are either refugees or displaced persons. You have to overcome your differences for the good of the whole country. Remember when in 2019, they came, Francis had them, leaders of the government and the opposition come to Rome and had them do a retreat. This is when he famously kissed the feet of both South Sudanese leaders. He really embarrassed them. 
But this gesture, he will not be able to do this time. But he's coming in a wheelchair. He's coming, showing, despite my limitations, despite my disability, I want to help you to get peace in your country for the sake of your people. And he's the same in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's a strong message. Here's Francis really going into the heart of the two countries in conflict to say to them, you know, I'm giving my all to help to push you to peace. You must give your all to make peace. Thank you, Jerry. I know you're going to be on the plane, so we wish you well. We thank you for your insight as always. I hope that when you get back from the DRC and from South Sudan, we'll be able to debrief and hear a lot more of the stories from the ground. Thank you, Ricardo. And uh, I hope our listeners pray for the Pope on this trip, because I think he, he keeps saying, he said, pray for me, pray for me. And the more you see happening here in Rome and the more you see the risks he's taking, the more you see the need for him to have the prayer and support of the people. Thank you, Jerry. And we will certainly pray for Pope Francis. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our audio engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles and production assistance from Kevin Jackson, Christopher Spielman and Vivian Richard. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Inside the Vatican is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York and at the Jesuits International Headquarters in Rome. To keep up to date with the latest Vatican coverage from America Media, please follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at RickDSSJ, that's R-I-C-D-S-S-J, and Jerry at Jerry O Rome. That's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. We also ask that you consider becoming a digital subscriber to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media with Gerardo O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Ricardo De Silva. We'll see you next time. <laughs>